All right, here we go. Rants with Justin and Joe. Joe. 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 Welcome to Rants with Justin and Joe. So we are honored that everyone's come today. We are honored to have our first uh, rants where we have two guests. Uh, we have Amy and uh, Peter joining us to talk about adulthood and autism. This was a very highly discussed and talked about rants prior uh, <laughs> to us starting. So I'm interested in to see all the comments. Uh, just so you guys know, the format of rants is I'm going to just tell you the logistics really quick. I will give you a keyword that you have to email to me, uh, your name, your BACB number, and a key uh, and the keyword to start. And then at the end, I will give you the keyword at the end, and you have to email that to me as well. What we're going to do is Joe and I are going to ask a couple of general questions to Peter and Amy, and we're just going to have kind of a discussion on that. And at any time, any audience member could write a question in the Q&A portion or in the chat uh, to the panelists. And Joe will be monitoring that and asking questions uh, that are being asked. Joe, did I miss anything? Uh, no, I think, I think that's it. And, okay. and yeah, it, you can ask questions anonymously. Or if you want to, we can throw you on the screen here as well if you feel comfortable with that. So we can handle it lots of different ways. We're flexible. So the opening keyword for today is wear, like you wear something, like you wear clothes. So wear, W-E-A-R. And wait for the end and I will give you guys the closing keyword. So with that, Joe, do you wanna start us off? Um, yeah, so uh, I think there's so many topics that we could go off of uh, and we intentionally keep these topics rather broad and vague so we can follow the discussion any which way we want to go uh, but one of the things that i know i've heard peter talk a lot about and i think it would be fun to bring into this conversation and, and informative is uh, goal selection because uh, i i think there's lots of different opinions on what goals should be selected and when uh, when we're talking about autism specifically, and then especially when we bring in like adolescence or, or adults or age and how that plays into it. So I just, I wanna throw that out there and, and leave it open to, to the four of us to kind of talk back and forth about that. Um, you know, it is like sort of near and dear to my heart because having done this for so long, I know I've wasted students' time and I've wasted families' time by teaching stuff that just didn't matter. You know, the, the joke I sort of make today is I go to transition programs and I see kids working on hand balancing their checking account. And then I ask people, how many of you hand balance? And nobody. Like, I balance my checking account by looking at what the bank statement says and going, okay. Like, that's the entire extent. But the reason why it's important is we will never, ever, ever have enough time. Like I have a limited amount of time to teach basically an unlimited number of skills. So I have to figure out some way to prioritize what is important and what is not important. Uh, and for each 
kid, there's going to be some uh, that are very uh, across students. And there's going to be some things that are just very, this student specific is going to be important for this particular student. Um, but we, we have to stop wasting time teaching things that don't matter. That's why I've stopped, um, and I've made my staff stop, um, using the word functional skills. Because it, it describes an attribute of the skill that may or not actually be functional. Mm -hmm. Like, I tell, I, they have to say that they're applied skills. So these are skills that my student will actually use. So if I can teach you sufficient reading skills to be able to um, use that in the supermarket to find what you need, to make a shopping list, to read People Magazine, to check out, like whatever it is, that's great. But if I can't get to that point and all I have is 50 dull sight words, that's not. Like that at that point becomes a, a, a fish or get bait thing and we have to sort of move on. So um, that's my big thing is like, I think the big thing we commit um, in our field um, in terms of in developing structural goals is that we waste time. You know, we just teach stuff that just doesn't matter. Yeah, I, I think that's so, uh, I, I can't say it any better than that. I always think about uh, uh, for a, an apology train that I would like to go on to go back and apologize to the people that I've contacted or that I've worked with uh, for all of the mistakes that I've made that now I know are mistakes. Uh, and every time I think about that, it just gets me a little bit more depressed. So I can definitely relate with, with wasting time. Uh, Amy, do you have anything that you'd like to add? Uh, can you just restate the question so I have it? Yeah, so I, I mean, I made it rather broad. That was just uh, goal selection and, and the different things and different variables that would go into goal selection across ages, uh, or uh, you can take that however you want. So I intentionally made it a little bit broad with just goal selection. I think for me, the most important thing when it comes to goal selection, when I think about it, is who is your client? Your client is not the parent. Your client is the child or the individual that you're working with. And all too often, we I think BCBAs kind of try to serve more the goals that the parents have in mind without also speaking to the individual and saying, what, what changes do you want to make? What do you want to do? What, you know what I mean? And, and so that's, that's who you're really working for. And it's sometimes easy, sometimes it's easy to forget that, especially if you are working with an individual who is minimally verbal or, or who is um, non-speaking. It's, it's easy to think, well, they, they can't say what they want to do. So I have to talk to the parent, but everybody communicates. Everybody has a way of communicating and individuals, who are non-speaking, it doesn't mean that they don't have something to say. So you can still find ways to reach those individuals and work with them and, and, and be mindful of their wishes, whatever those wishes are. Um, and I agree with Peter about, you know, wasting time teaching uh, things that don't matter. I think that that often, we often get like really um, crazed about academic things and these other skills. And yet the person can't cross the street on their own. Like when I got out of high school, I can't think of a single person who's asked about my GPA. But you can be damn sure that people that I have needed to be able to cross the street since I've graduated. So, and, and then of course, when it comes to what Peter and I tend to focus on, which is uh, dating and sexuality, those are very crucially important skills that are that are so often overlooked and not focused on and given the the attention that they need. So, um, and that's a whole other discussion in and of itself. How do we how do we use ABA to teach those skills? That's what I've been interested in. But um, yeah, I think definitely focusing on what matters and keeping in mind who you are working for and whose input is the most important here. Because I always say, when people ask me, 
oh, you're, you're autistic. How can you, you know, want to do ABA? And I say, well, to me, ABA is about working with someone to make meaningful changes that they've chosen to make to their lives. And so that's what, where I put the priority. So I think that's a good thing to focus on. Yeah, so I think Amy and Peter, you guys are you guys are spot on in terms of we need to be listening to our clients and and going with uh, curriculum and intervention that you know they want to be a part of, and not wasting time. And I think that's just not an adult issue. I think that's an issue at all levels. I remember Peter, you and I being up in uh, Massachusetts on a talk where we were both saying the same thing. I was saying it from the kid perspective, and you're saying it from the adult perspective. It's just that we just cannot be wasting time. They deserve, you know, a maximum amount of our intervention to applied skills, as, as you said. A and we really have to really focus away sometimes from those academic skills uh, and, and go things that are gonna make a meaningful impact with, your with their life. Amy, you brought up the dating skills and that was the very first question we had. Uh, so I'm gonna, you know, as I said, the audience really helps control a lot of what we say and talk about. And so the question is, how are you teaching dating skills? Do you want me or Peter to answer? Uh, Amy, I'm going to start with you and then we'll go to Peter. Start with you, Amy. <laughs> <laughs> okay, sure. Well, so, um, so for my master's thesis, which I conducted a couple of years ago, um, I ran a study that taught dating skills to two adults on the spectrum. Um, due to the limitations of the scope of the study, the amount of time I had and resources, I could only do, do it with men. Um, I, and I hope to be able to expand what I did um, and also work with women on the spectrum and, and, and all kinds of folks to teach those skills. But within the limitations of the study, um, I created a package, a treatment package, basically, because there was really nothing in the existing research literature that I could draw from. Like, there's tons of stuff about teaching social skills, but there's really nothing about dating skills. So this was, this was uncharted territory. This was boldly going where no man has gone before. And uh, it was hard. Um, and I wound up doing a combination of didactic instruction, which just meant that I had a written checklist that I would go through with the participants that we would talk about, and then in vivo role playing. So they would practice asking someone out there. There was an actor who was part of the study, a confederate in the study, um, and I would video record them. And then we would do video modeling where they would watch a target video to see what it was supposed to look like. And they would watch themselves. And then we would talk about it and compare the two. Um, and so for, the, for the, the treatment part, they would be in a classroom standing up. And for the generalization, they were in a kind of cafe, coffee shop setting, sitting down. So those was the differences between the, the two. Um, and the, 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 the dependent variables, the stuff that I was watching and taking data on was um, eye contact, was physical proximity, were they too close, too far away. Um, what, I, I also took data on, uh, what is it, physical proximity? Um, the, the number of, of things that they said, because I thought I was going to have guys who were going to be kind of shy and, and not know really what to say to ask someone out on a date. Um, and let's see, physical proximity, vocal tone. Um, and I think, yeah, and vocal tone, I said, because sometimes uh, some folks on the spectrum can be uh, monotone in, in the way that they speak. So, so I was looking at that. And what ended up happening was um, I did not achieve experimental control because the participants that I had were extremely talkative, but nothing they were saying was going to get them a date and a snowball's chance in hell. And so, um, which again, I'm not trying to disparage anybody, but it's just quite, quite simply, you know, in, in, in the, in the um, baseline, one of them made a comment to the actor, to the girl about her weight. And I'm like, okay, game over. Like we're done. That's it. This is not, 
Like, forget it. You don't ever mention somebody's weight. Um, and, 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 uh, but if you, so if you watch the videos, you saw a dramatic difference from baseline to generalization. But if you looked at the actual data, it didn't look like there was much change because they were so verbal and, and talkative. But, um, so this was kind of the approach that I took. But in the end, you know, I did social validity measures. I followed up about six months after the study. And one of the participants um, had used the skills he, that he had learned to get a girl's phone number and she became his girlfriend. And then a couple months ago, actually last year, because time has no meaning now, I don't know when things are happening anymore. But uh, the, the other participant told me that he's now married. So I don't know if I had anything to do with that, but I was so happy. I was like, oh my God, yay. Um, so that was, that was what I attempted to do. And obviously, you know, there were, again, limitations. Like I say, it took me a year just to get two participants. Because guess what? A lot of people don't like to have their dating skills critiqued. Like, who knew? Big shocker. Um, and all my classmates, you know, are doing early intervention stuff. And it's all stuff geared toward kids. And, and I'm the only one who's trying to work with adults. And so my professors were sort of not sure how to help me, really, which kind of left me, like, on my own. I think I still have some PTSD from the whole thing of just trying to get through my thesis and the defenses. Um, I'm also, I think, the only student in the history of my grad school who catered her own thesis defense. I literally cooked food to bring to it just because that's what I do. Um, but so, yes, yeah, so that was kind of the, the outcome there. But I would love to continue what I started. I would love to be able to work with, like I said, women on the spectrum and, and find ways to tweak what I try to do. Again, there's no, I don't think there's, we have a developed specific way to teach dating skills with ABA. We need to to have maybe more curriculum. Peter and I have talked about working on a curriculum of some kind and and I would, yeah, I would love to see this explored more in, in the research. I think there's just not enough of it, unfortunately. So, so before I give it to Peter, I just wanna say, Amy, we're, Joe, I, I won't speak for Joe, he can answer himself, or Julia who's here, but I think we'd be on board to help in terms of conducting research on this. Uh, because I do agree with you, it's an it's a area that's not been explored. And I think we can find creative ways as a team really to uh, get that out there because it's very needed. Absolutely. You can definitely speak, yeah, absolutely. Definitely speak for me there because yeah, that, like Amy, you said, that area of research is just entirely lacking. And uh, to go back to the goal thing, everyone, there's a big focus on academic skills. And we've talked for a long time that it's not just about the academic skills. Uh, and if you're not targeting social skills or teaching social skills that are going to lead to uh, the skills that you would need to get a date, uh, we're missing the mark. Uh, and we're not, there's a focus on functional as opposed to applied, like Peter said. Yeah, I mean, I used to say, I used to make this joke all the time, but the truth is nobody ever got laid by knowing all 50 states. <laughs> you know, like, like, but being able to tell a joke, being able to listen to somebody, being like, you know, knowing how to dress, knowing how, like, you know, not having body odor. Those are the things that actually will make a difference, you know, in the long term. So, but, you know, maybe there's somebody out there who thinks being able to name all 50 states is a desirable trait, but, you know, it doesn't make any sense to me. It's got to be a small group. Yeah. The other tricky part about teaching this is that I had it set up so that if the participants did, you know, A, B, C, the, per the person would say yes. In the real world, you can do everything right and somebody can still say, no, I don't want to go out with you because people right. have free will. That's, that's what the world is. And so then it becomes like, how do you, you can't always set it up so that you're always going to get that result in the real world. It just doesn't, 
happen. And, and then, of course, we would say, well, then how do we teach people to deal with rejection? And I have a, a lifetime's worth of experience dealing with rejection, but it still hurts. It doesn't matter how old you are, how many times you go through it, it's still difficult. And so maybe that's part of the hesitation around teaching the skill, in, in addition to just general ethical concerns. But like, how do you teach somebody to do something that they might, that still might not work out and they'll still get hurt? And that, but you know, that's, that's life. We're all going to get hurt and we have to learn how to get back up when we fall down. So. Yeah, I think, I think you're hitting it perfectly. There's some uncomfortableness of teaching these types of skills. I remember uh, working with uh, in a social skills group of three adolescent boys. And one of the things they were doing was they were checking out uh, girls really inappropriately. And I was yeah. talking to them about how, like, how you can look at a girl, but not stare, make it awkward and comfortable. And then as I, Amy, we did the same thing where we had an, act, an actor, uh, Tracy Parker, who I think Peter uh, knows, uh, who had to dress the part and like, and, and like make it so like, uh, make it a little bit more provocative for the kids. And if I didn't know Tracy for like 30 years, like I would not feel comfortable doing that. So there's a little bit of, from a, like a therapist's point of view, a little bit of being uncomfortable and it's just not as easy as um, teaching the states or teaching how to balance a checkbook. It's takes a lot more nuance and skill, I think. Mm -hmm. A lot, yeah, definitely. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and since, you know, uh, I feel like we could talk about getting laid the entire time. Um, <laughs> but but uh, there was another question when we started talking about goals that I think we should circle back to, um, that there's a, there are a lot of self-advocates that take offense to teaching better behavior. How do you feel about this perspective? Hmm. Um, well, I'll start if you don't mind, Amy. Like, no, go I ahead, think, please. Yeah, I think my job really is to make sure that people have um, the skills to access as many preferred opportunities in life as possible. Like it's it's that simple. I don't want to change you. I don't. I can't make you not have autism at the age of forty-five but I can give you the skills so that you can go to the movies with someone or you can cook your own meals as opposed to somebody having to bring you your meal. Like, um, I, there's a, that's how I really look at it. And, you know, I was, you know, yesterday at, when I was teaching the ABA class, ABA Adolescents and Adults class um, for Endicott, like I said that, you know, sometimes I meet, you know, a 30-year-old, um, you know, low verbal individual who engages in stereotypy like 95% of 30-second intervals across six hours. And I'm just impressed. I'm like, you're really freaking good at stereotypy. Like, that's like, that is amazing that you are like that committed to yet to that particular behavior. So at that point, my goal isn't to decrease that behavior. It's to give him something else he would prefer to do. You know, to figure, because hundreds of other people before me have tried to change that behavior. You know, otherwise it wouldn't have gotten to me. You know, so my job is then to take a completely different route and see, well, what else can I figure out for you that's going to be more interesting, more entertaining, more enjoyable, but also on some level, help you do other things. You know, so, you know, I understand, you know, some of the issue about changing behavior. Um, but I also, like I said, my job is, I think, just to give people more opportunities in life. And then at some point they can choose to do it or not, you know, 
So depending on whatever contingencies are present at the moment. So it's not like, um, but that's, you know, I'm not trying to make anybody not be autistic. I'm just trying to give them a life. So. I will always say to people that to me, Peter stands out head and shoulders apart from other ABA practitioners I know because he has autistic people as friends. He, they're not just clients. They're not just, you know, uh, students of his. He has autistic adults who he counts as friends. And that I think gives him a unique perspective. Like me, like we are friends. We're not just colleagues. We have been friends for years. And, and so like Peter respects autistic individuals for who they are. And it's not just looking at them as, as his work, as his job. And I, I have always said this, you know, when I was growing up, I knew when teachers, special ed teachers, aides were looking at me because they were being paid to look at me, not because they actually cared about me. Kids, kids know the difference. People on the spectrum know the difference. Even if we can't communicate that, even though, yes, we are disabled, at, 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 at the core, a person knows when someone really cares about them or is looking at them because they genuinely are, are, are interested in them as opposed to that they're, they're obligated to be here. And so I think the same holds true um, in, in, this, in this field as well. And I, I agree, you know, to me, when I, be, I became, I had a lot of misconceptions about ABA when I first started learning about it. Um, and I was looking to get my master's degree. And when I finally realized what it was, I thought this, this is great because like I can do this to help people and help make their lives better. Like I, it should never be about making somebody less autistic. Any BCBA worth their salt is never gonna say, is never gonna be looking to make somebody less autistic. And if they are, are aiming for that, then they're misguided and, and they are wrong and should rightfully be called out for that, frankly. Um, you, you, know, you can't change the way that somebody is wired, but what you can do is give someone the tools that they need to be as successful as possible, to be the best version of themselves that they can be in this world. Like it's not about making somebody into, a, into someone else, into another person completely. It's about making them the best version of themselves that, that they can be. And so that's what I saw when I, when I looked at, at ABA and what I saw as a possibility. Um, and it's, it's been hard to be this kind of voice out in the wilderness. And, you know, when I started presenting at Abba I, I was very intimidated initially. Um, and then I thought, why? No, I got accepted to present here. I'm here to be this voice and to represent. I'm not going to let these people scare me. No, thank you. And so I, I held my head up high all five feet of me because that's how tall I am. And I said, I'm here. So, um, and it's, it's, it's been hard and I've gotten a lot of grief from the autistic community. I've gotten, I've gotten it from both sides, but I'm, I'm, I'm here to fight the fight as, as much as I can. So I think, I hope that BCBAs are listening and, and, and are starting to change. I think there is starting to be a shift, but people have to understand it's very hard to shift a culture. And there is a culture in the ABA world that has been around for a long time. And that's what we're working within. And that's what we're trying to change and shift. So I think it's starting to happen, I hope. Well, you know, just, to, just to add like one quick thing that like, um, you know, back when we first got the Asperger's diagnosis, like a couple of us at Rutgers, we decided to do a support group and it really was just a support group. Like we didn't do social skills training. We're like, everyone just came, we talked about whatever they wanted to do. Like, like we just gave them a space to be, really. And one of the women who came regularly, Donna Vickers, I'm not going to go through the whole story, but um, after having a really horrible first experience with a new physician, she came back to group and we did some role play about how maybe she could handle it better. At which point she stopped and turned to me and said, you know what, if you know typicals of all the skills, why don't you adapt for a while, damn it? Like, why is it always my fault? 
like, I'm a 30-year-old woman who has a neurological disorder that makes it hard for me to understand social nuance. What makes you think another freaking social skills group is going to change my life? And I had to go, hmm. <laughs> you know, I, I think you're right. And, you know, as a culture, we've gotten very good at understanding what accommodation means for people with physical challenges. We're not good at understanding what accommodations are for people who have neurological differences. You know, and what that would mean for us in terms of how do we change our behavior to sort of, you know, sometimes meet them in the middle, sometimes meet them at 90-10, and sometimes meet them at 10-90. Like, um, but I think that's how all relationships work. You know, there is nothing that's truly equal. You know, it's, a, it's an ongoing uh, process to actually, you know, work with somebody. I was just going, I'm just sitting back in awe of this conversation between the two of you. Like, I think the majority of the people and the, uh, the participants are, Amy, I just want to say thank you for being here and thank you for continuing that fight. And I think some of what's being discussed here is not all ABA is created alike. Uh, yeah. And I think what the ABA you fell in love with, Amy, is the same ABA I fell in love with as mm -hmm. well. And I think there's too many people that are contacting bad ABA. Uh, mm -hmm. And I think as a result of that, we have a lot of this conflict amongst um, people that are receiving ABA-related services and the people that are mm -hmm. providing those ABA-related services. Like, to go back to what Peter said, it doesn't always have to be a, you either do the behavior or you don't do the behavior. Like, I don't need to make all of your, all of your stereotypes stop. I have some stems. I just, I have the conditions under which I engage in those stems versus when I don't. Like, I don't go and yell at the library. Uh, you know, I, I've, I've come to learn when it's okay and, uh, for me to do certain things uh, based on societal norms, whether those are right or wrong. I think that could be an entire another, uh, you know, rant. Uh, but I, I think it, if more people were to contact the ABA that we all love, uh, I think some of these problems might not be as big of problems as they are. I also would just say, though, it's not only the responsibility of people to come in contact with the better ABA, it's our responsibility as a field to do better. Um, because we, it's easy to say, well, that's the bad ABA, but people have experienced abuse and people have experienced traumatic, you know, things under the, under the guise of ABA, whether or not it's true ABA or not. We have to take accountability for that and say, like, you know, this did happen and this person's experience is valid and we have to, you know, look at the other members of our community and say, we have to do better. Like that, that's, you know, it, it's, it's a responsibility that we all share. Um, and it's, you know, I straddle both worlds, like I say. So I'm, I'm, you know, speaking as an autistic person and as someone with a master's degree in ABA, and we have to have that, you know, that accountability. Um, and the, the world becomes very insular. I've, I've seen this at the conferences. It's very much an echo chamber. You know, the same people presenting again and again. I, the day that I know things will have changed is the day they have an autistic presenter at the autism conference. I have yet to see an autistic presenter at the ABA autism conference. I have been wanting to do it for years. Um, you know, I'm here, like hire me, but I, they, they, they still haven't, haven't done it. And I, and I keep thinking, when are they going to get the message? You know, and the, there, there's been a reckoning in the field over the past couple of years. I've seen it with, with Me Too and with a lot of other issues that are endemic to the field, systemic issues, but this still has not yet been really addressed. And, and if we want to be the field that we all believe ABA is capable of being, we have to address those issues. We have to take them head on. So. Well, I would just, I would, and, and 
you know, Justin, you and I had the, the, this conversation as part of our rant in um, Massachusetts that time. That, that I just want people to think like behavioral analysts. Like people know how to act like it. They they know that data is a plural term. You know, they can talk about motivating operations, but actually think what that means in the life of this person. They don't take the time to do it. You know, they sort of just like fill in a Mad Libs for a behavior plan and, you know, develop it that way as opposed to spending time getting to, to know the individual and then figuring out what's going on in his or her life. Yeah, I, I think that people need to be better trained at the end of the day. And I think it's a gigantic problem, Amy, as you're mentioning about uh, you or someone else presenting at the conference is I think people right now in terms of the whole field are very into uh, very small things and not bigger picture things. And so the echo chambers on smaller things of like how you do preference assessments of color pictures versus black and white pictures. And like, that's like a hot button topic. And it's just, it's a, to me, it's a waste of my time, um, which is why my favorite time at conferences is, you know, talking to Peter or, or getting drinks or whatever, because I feel that we're not looking at the bigger picture. So I think we need to do kind of that change. And I think it needs to be a systematic uh, way of going about and making change and showing what uh, good ABA is and what bad ABA uh, is as well, so that people can get the comparative difference. I think the problem is that, you know, people say, well, that's bad ABA, and then they're not really going to highlight the difference of what good ABA is. And, and I think mm -hmm. a better job is Absolutely. highlighting, no, this is why it's bad. We condone this. This is not what we want. This is what we want to see. Um, I do want to circle around before I get to another part. And it's really hard. There's a, there's a lot of questions uh, today. So hopefully, Joe, you're keeping track of some of them. I'm, I'm trying. I'm trying. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think I, I love the thing about just a better version and, and, and like uh, just, you know, that kind of stuff is sometimes as a practitioner, we just have hard choices to make. And this is not just with uh, autistic adults. This is with, with anyone. And so if an adult who has a diagnosis of autism or typically developing or neurotypically developing comes and is really showing uh, depression or loneliness and, and suicide thoughts, it's my job as a practitioner to give those skills and say, you know, we might want to change this. We might want to do this. You might not want to be inside all the time. You not, might not want to listen to sad music. You might not want to do this stuff. I think that's just, it's hard because I understand what the client is saying and they might like it, but my job as a practitioner at the end of the day is to look at the well-being of who I'm working with. And so there's cases where the client and I might not be in agreement and it's just the role I'm playing that I'm ethically and I feel morally bound to. I don't know how you guys feel about that, but there's certain cases that we're just going to have to do our role. Oh, I definitely agree. Um, you know, my point really is that we should approach it though from a thoughtful way. Yep. You know, that's my, yep. you know, otherwise it's, you know, we're not doing our, we're not keeping true to our ethical guidelines, you know, um, that's all I want people to do. Yeah. And I agree with you, Peter. I was just making the, I want to make sure that people understand there's times that practitioners are going to have to thoughtfully, Absolutely. carefully, really provide a lot of rationales to the client, to, to, to guardians of why we're doing something, but really sometimes there's just things we have to do uh, because that's our obligation as a therapist or interventionist. Right, no, I, I definitely agree. 
Well, and I think you've said this before, Justin, it comes down to making an informed decision about treatment from the client's perspective. Yeah. Like if, if I decide that I don't want to have friends and you're trying to teach me the skills to develop friendships, I need to know what I'm opting out of. And if, if I know what I'm opting out of, then fine. But if I don't know what not developing meaningful friendships might lead to, then how can I make that informed decision about treatment? So it's a, it's a balance that you have to walk there. So there's another question that was asked. I'm going to switch topics because questions are somewhat different. Um, that we would love to have some discussion about buy-in. And I assume this means either buy-in from the client. Um, so how do we go about getting buy-in? Is that what you're inferring, Joe? Uh, no, well, this is from Malika Pritchett asset, Dr. Malika Pritchett, who is our guest last week. And so I texted her to ask for some clarification. Uh, and she said that there's constant discussion about getting client and parent buy-in on programming and goals, mostly inexperienced BCBAs and students, but it's a phrase that's all too common. Uh, and she'd love to get the perspective of our guests on that. Um, can I go first, Amy? Please, go ahead. Uh, you know, I get the question, uh, if this is what the question is asking, a lot about, well, how do I get parents to say, um, you know, we're gonna we're gonna stop teaching reading in its sixth year and go on to something else because it's just not. Um, and I I have to be honest, I I am lucky enough that I get to play the Peter Gerhardt card sometimes, you know, and and people come to me because they know I think that way, you know. So it's it's not as if I'm a, a, a BCBA who's in their second year of practice who's trying to make this argument, who doesn't sort of have, you know, the, the academic behavior analytic and street cred that you need to like, just get people to, to, to buy in with you. Now, it doesn't always work, you know? And I can only play the Peter Gerhardt card like once or twice with the same family. And after that, I'm just another schmuck at Epic. You know, <laughs> like it's that freaking simple, but at least I get to start from that perspective. But I had to, build all that over a very long period of time. Like, you know, I, I didn't come out fully formed. You know, this has been a long process. And I still, um, there are days, quite honestly, I think I suck at my job, you know? Um, and I think if anybody is honest, I think they feel that same way too, because what we're asked to do is so immense. And what we want to do is so immense. That, um, you know, it gets it gets a little overwhelming at times. I, I know I kind of strayed off track there for the question, but um, the other thing that I do I do a lot and I recommend with all of my BCBAs and teachers is shut up and listen. Like listen to what the parent is talking about. Listen to what the person is talking about if they have the vocal verbal skills. Um, everybody's trained to be a problem solver, so don't go into this into the house of a seventeen year old who's having a behavior challenge and recommend another activity schedule. Like this is a parent who's had probably 18 activity schedules across 17 years. Um, and who's also Red Skinner. And who's also Red, like, like parents today are smart people, but like shut up and listen to what they want. And although I have no data on it, I think 75% of the time, 90% of the problem is solved just by you shutting up and listening. Mm -hmm. Because sometimes people just want to be heard. Yeah, so. 
I think what you said about feeling like you suck at your job is exactly the reason why you're so good at your job, Peter, because there's too many people who think that they're amazing and excellent at what they do, and they're not going to listen to feedback and criticism because they think they have it all figured out. And you know you don't have it all figured out. You're constantly asking questions. You're looking to do better. And that's what makes you good at your job. And that's what we need. Is we, I, I see too many BCBAs who are kind of in this little ivory tower and think that they are gods and they know everything and that they have nothing more to learn. But we all have something to learn. Like when you go through this life, you're learning all the time. If you're open to it and you, 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 know, you realize that every day is a potential learning experience and this world especially, um, this is, you know, this is not like other jobs. This is people's lives, right? I always say this, at the end of the day, you close your filing cabinet, you lock it up, you go home and, and you're done. It's your job. You get to stop dealing with the autism at the end of the day. We don't, it's our lives. We continue being autistic after you finish your day's work. And so um, the fact that you are, are, are so, you put that, that level on yourself of where you think, how can I do better? That to me, that speaks to, to your professionalism and that you are someone who cares about people's lives and sees, it, sees people as people who, who this is our lives and it's not just your job. Um, and and, and what, what we're talking about, about buy-in, somebody in the chat um, asked a question before about how do you approach protective parents, which I assume mean related to the sexuality stuff. And, and I've, I've had this come up. Um, and I, I always say, well, first of all, I mean, it's, it's hugely complex because a lot of the reason for hesitance is, is how we continuously view people on the spectrum um, as children forever. We, we're not seeing them as adults with adult needs and desires. There's this kind of infantilization that occurs. So automatically off the bat, people are thinking that people on the spectrum don't have the sexual needs and desires. So again, that's something I have to dispel right away. And then if parents do start to even begin to think about this, the, they don't begin to consider having these conversations until their, their children are 15, 16, 17 years old. And it's way too late by then. It's, these are conversations that have to start in like kindergarten, um, if, if not you know, beforehand. And it, primarily, of course, well not primarily, but for one reason to keep people on the spectrum safe, to prevent victimization and people on the spectrum from becoming victims of abuse, but then also to empower people on the spectrum to make choices when it comes to sexuality. And you know, I think parents have this fear that um, it, it'll somehow destroy their child's innocence if they teach them about sex. So, he, you know, he, he wouldn't be thinking about it unless I was talking about, well, how old is your, is your, is your child, ma'am? You know, he's 15, ma'am. That's all he thinks about. He's 15, you know, <laughs> like live in reality here. You know, I, I try to be patient. I try to be very understanding as much as I can, but there are some people that you have to just whack over the head with proverbial hammer to kind of get the, get the message through. And I, I, you know, I say to people, like, if you want to protect your child, you will give your child this information because by not giving them this information, you're just going to leave them vulnerable. You're going to leave them not knowing what these things are and they're going to encounter these situations and these people and they're going to be taken advantage of because they won't know what it is that's going on. So the best way to protect your child is to give them information, give them knowledge. So that's, you know, that's how I try to get the buy-in. I, I, you know, I realize that, that a lot of it is being a good salesman and I, and I try to sell it as, as well as I can. But again, I'm an Aries and I'm Italian and I'm a redhead. I lose patience after a while. So uh, I, I, I hope that, you know, and, and I think also what helps is me talking about my experiences, because again, you guys, you know, you all speak from the more clinical perspective. And when Peter and I started doing presentations together, I was kind of doing the personal perspective. And when people hear about what someone's gone through, 
that brings it home in a way. Like all of a sudden they see, oh my gosh, that could be my child. That could be my, you know, so that I think is what, is why that perspective is so needed, why we need to hear from adults on the spectrum is that that's what helps people see the importance of teaching some of these skills. Uh, I'm like Joe, I'm loving what you guys are saying. And I think it highlights how Joe and I were trained. I think, you know, you're going there and you listen. I mean, and you should be doing that uh, and listening to what they're saying and not being judgmental and, and, and taking notes mentally. Uh, I, I hardly ever write down notes because I think it kind of puts a strange uh, dynamic in there. If I'm in my notepad and like jotting down things, I want to be more conversational and listening. And then as, as the clinician, you should be prioritizing of what's important to work out, what's not important to work with, and realizing going back to like uh, Mont Wolf of like social validity, prioritizing what the client is and, and what you're not and what you want, but really listening to the client or the or the guardians and, and coming up with uh, uh, prioritizing, not based on an assessment, not based on insurance funding, but really what is going to be uh, the most impactful for the client and or the family. Mm -hmm. And then I think the other thing with that is the approach I take when I used to be a clinician, uh, because now I, I consider myself a researcher and academic person, is it's just shaping over time. I see a lot of times people are in there and they're just wanting to you know, come in full uh, guns a blazing and make the change, right? And like for me, it's just like, you're there hopefully for the long time. So you can do just very little things and get that behavior to shape over time. Um, and then I had two more things. I think the, the Peter approach is not just because of who you are, Peter. It's also the way you interact with people that makes it well. And I'm going to say a little story. And Joe, you can cut me off if I get too long-winded with it. But I remember being at Endicott where we were you know, doing the conference together. And you were talking about uh, functional skills and not teaching math uh, or counting money at the register, just teach them how to swipe a credit card because that's uh, that's what's needed and it would be more functional given the scenario you went with. And I remember uh, someone in the audience said, well, how do I teach like dollar discrimination? And you must've been fuming a little bit inside. You just spent 20 minutes talking about like not doing this, but the way you handle it is just like, you know, this soft, gentle shaping approach. I think that's what's gonna carry a lot of weight, not coming up like, no, why aren't you paying attention to me? I'm Peter Gerhardt. I had years of experience. Which is like, let's consider this. Let's let's talk about that. So I think the approach we take. And the last thing, I mean, unless you are an autistic adult, you're not going to be able to live it. Like Joe and I can't live live what it's like. But yeah. one advice I got early on was you should go live the experience of the parents or the guardian. You should try to seek out those opportunities. And, and so. Ron uh, always talks about uh, opportunity. He said, he's like, you have to, you know, target this. You have to be consistent with reinforcement throughout the day. And he went and lived, uh, you know, in a group home uh, or a teaching family style home with uh, two autistic adults. And he realized that was crazy. Like you have to, like, he was not going to survive as an adult, uh, you know, doing that. And he had to be very, when he was going to be consistent and not consistent. So I think a lot of times we come in as BCBAs and saying, nope, you have to follow this to a T or else you're not adhering to our protocols. You need to live in what it's like to actually have those mm -hmm. protocols. And I think if you Absolutely. do that, you're going to get better buy-in. Yeah. Well, and to, to, I think maybe summarize all of that, if you're taking that approach, you don't need to even worry about buy-in 
because uh, I think buy-in sounds kind of icky anyways. It almost like I'm trying to sell you something when really what we're talking about is a collaborative approach and everyone is on board and everyone is moving the same direction. And if you're taking the Peter approach, I think we should coin that now and, and market it for him. No, uh, if <laughs> maybe that's an awful name for it. <laughs> but if you're taking that approach, then I feel like buy-in becomes almost an afterthought because everyone is on the same page and everyone's moving forward. Uh, and someone asked Peter if, uh, so having a, a, some level of imposter syndrome actually makes you a better practitioner. Uh, and I'll, I'll let you say what you want to say about that, but I think it's more about knowing what you don't know. And it's a, and that's a skill and it's a skill that we all need to develop and feel comfortable with knowing what we don't know and continuing to work on expanding our repertoires. Um, yeah, I mean, I do think that's it. And, and I'll just show everybody quickly for a second. Like this, you know, the bookcase in my office. You know, there's probably, because given how the cost of academic texts, you know, $25,000, $30,000 worth of books there. And part of it, I buy them and, and read them, or at least leaf through them out of fear <laughs> that, that there's something I'm missing. And then I'm going to be at some conference making some point and somebody's going to stand up and say, well, obviously, Dr. Garrett, you haven't read so-and-so and so like, and I'd be like, damn it. Like, this is, but the field is just so freaking fascinating. You know, like step outside of autism and go into like behavioral medicine and behavioral gerontology and, you know, animals, like it's fascinating. Like it is endlessly fascinating, I think. Um, so it, for me, it's, it's it just so, you know, it, it may be a little imposter syndrome, like I, I'm not very comfortable with, you know, being the Dr. Gerhardt, um, you know, but I like it, you know, <laughs> I'm not going to say, uh, you know, um, but I don't know how I got to this point. But there also is just this drive to really want to know everything that I can know. Um, and I get annoyed sometimes, like I would love to do a survey and just see for and i'm not being critical here i think it's it happens in, in almost every other field for bcbas who've had their bcba five years when is the last time they actually read a research article um and i think that'd be a really interesting question um because we used to talk about it with special education teachers that they they join cec because they can do it cheaply and they get exceptional children and then they graduate and now they have to pay 219 dollars a year and they say hell with that and then they never get another journal. But I wouldn't want to go to a, a dental surgeon who isn't up on the latest research in dental surgery. I wouldn't want to go to a cancer specialist who wasn't up in the latest. I don't think individuals and parents should have to go to BCBA behavior analysts who aren't up on the latest research. I think that's one of our ethical responsibilities. So it's a little bit of fear, a little bit of imposter syndrome. Um, that it all kind of mixes together, I guess, at the end of the day. You know, if I could go just back quickly in one, um, you know, and they're, they're learning how to like, like shut up and listen and, and that. One of the things I love about behavior analysis is the only person who gets to tell me if I'm right or wrong is the student. So, you know, I'm very comfortable saying, okay, you know what, let's try your way for two weeks. We'll collect data. We'll see if it works. If not, we're going to go my way. You know, I, and that took me a long time to get to that, quite honestly, because you get into your own ego. Oops, Freud, sorry. 
but you know, you get into your own self image. Um, and so when I finally was able to sort of just move beyond that and become, um, I said, I don't say I'm a radical behavior analyst, I say I'm a radicalized behavior analyst because I'm, I'm not fully there, but I'm close. Um, you know, I, that's the, you know, that's the beauty of it. It's not about me. It's only about this student or this adult or this, uh, you know, has nothing to do with me. That was a ramble. I apologize. For yeah, no, I, li I like the I like the ramble. Um, I would love to add to your survey question. I was writing it down. How many of you are is going to research versus or research non quotations going look at research versus finding out research through like Facebook pages and that's where you get the information of an article. And yeah. I think you know I it's important that we keep up on research. And I talked about it, so it's not it should not just be. ABA research when working with adults, autistic adults or children with autism, it needs to be, you should be looking at all types of research. And so often I hear like, well, you should just go to Java or behavior analysis and practice. No, like we need to go to like journal of autism. We have to go to focus on autism, education, treatment, children, special education journals. We talk about publishing it in those journals a lot. And some of us do, and many of us don't. But we also have to be reading that stuff. We need to get this whole wraparound perspective of mm -hmm. knowing what's out there to make us better clinicians. And on top of that, probably reading, you know, curriculum books and different books like that. I, I, I go back to Amy's uh, point of living in like an echo chamber. I see that at conferences too. It's mm -hmm. like, I know Joe and I, when we go to conferences, we try to see different presenters like, Peter, we love you, but we hardly go see you because- Yeah, we, why would you do that? <laughs> yeah, we know what you're gonna say somewhat, and if not, we'll, we'll talk to you. It's like, I wanna hear what a new researcher says. No, Peter's a palate cleanser for all the others. Very true. <laughs> so and I, there, there's a journal, I just wanted to say, there's a journal on autism in adulthood. I don't know if you guys know of it, but that's a new journal that's out there now. So hopefully that'll be a great resource as well, you know, to focus on research that deals with adults on the spectrum, which there still is, unfortunately very little yeah well and if there's people that don't want to listen to justin about this because he's justin there's actually research on this there was a, a poster at an abba that interviewed bcbas to see what population they work with and then what journal they typically access and everybody who said they they work with autism in any which way the majority of the research that they were contacting was in Java, and the percentage of autism-related information published in that journal is so small that if that's the only information they're getting, they're not going to be great practitioners whatsoever. Yeah. You know, um, Frank Cicero, who's um, chair of the, the Department of Behavior Analysis at Seton Hall University, um, he and I were talking one time, at like two or three years ago at ABAI, he went to see a presentation on training lions and tigers. You know. And it wasn't like Joe Tiger or whatever. It was like like a real actual, you know, animal trainer. But we were talking and he said, what was great? He said, the guy said, you know, to do this, you need to understand behavior analysis, but you also need to understand lions and tigers. If you just go in thinking, you know, behavior analysis, you're going to get eaten. You need to know all this other stuff. And, you know, I think that's what Justin is saying. Like you need to know all this other stuff to apply this, this amazing tool you know, and have it make sense to the people you're working with and make sense to you and then end up with this positive socially valid outcome. Yeah, I, Absolutely. Peter, I remember in graduate school going on the elevator, I was a first year student at University of Kansas, a 
big ABA program. And there was a fifth year person leaving that she was just getting her doctoral degree. She was defending that week. And she was going into a job at, into uh, children with autism, but never worked for five years with uh, children with autism. Never was, that was not her thing. And the quote was behavior is just behavior. And that might be true, but you do need to know about the population you're, you're working with. Yeah. And yeah. I was just shocked. I, I mean, here I am, you know, uh, uh, Still pretty opinionated, but young. Uh, <laughs> uh, but just shocked, like that she didn't have a history of that, and that's the job she took. And so mm -hmm. I think we do need to be well educated across a variety of ways. And I fear that once they get their BCBA, that they go to CEU events. I mean, I see it. I'm sure that Peter and mm -hmm. Amy see it. They go to BCEU events. And they have their computer out and they're doing their reports and they sign in, sign out. They don't even listen to the information uh, that's going on. They're not get, reading the research articles. They're not reading curriculum books. They're, they're getting their information from social media or they're getting their information from what they had 15 years ago. And hopefully we've changed and hopefully there's new exciting so, stuff coming out there. Not all good, I have to say, but some yeah. good stuff. Yep. Yep. Uh, I, I think we've handled the majority of the questions. I'm, I'm impressed. They've been flying, flying in. I think the majority of them just have worked within the discussion. Uh, I think given where time is, do, do either of you have any final words you want to throw out there or any final points you'd like to make? Amy? Uh, no, just I, I'm so glad I was able to be part of this and, and to have this discussion with all of you. And um, I... I hope that this is a trend that will continue with BCBAs listening to autistic adults and, uh, you know, not just um, inviting me into the room, but actually giving me a seat at the table. There, there's a difference. Um, what, what they say when, when they talk about diversity versus inclusion, right? You know, diversity is like almost like filling a quota. You have someone there who ticks the box, but inclusion is actually having them at the table, actually giving them a, a place to speak. And so we, we you know, I, I hope we keep that in mind as well, that when we're you know, having people come into these spaces that we're holding space for them as well. We're not just saying, okay, you're here, you're in the room, that's good enough. It's not good enough. You have to really include people in these conversations. And I loved what Peter said about the only person who can tell him he's wrong is, is, is the client. And a true collaborative relationship is not just with people from other, um, other fields. It's not just BCBAs and, and SLPs and and, and things like that. It's also with the client. The client has to be part of that collaboration. Um, otherwise, it's, it's, you know, it's missing something. It's not a real, in my view. And I love that Peter is open to something like that. And I know it's not always possible in all circumstances and in all, with all clients and situations. Obviously, you have to take it on a case-by-case -case situation. But he shows that it's possible. If he can do it, then all you other schmucks out there can do it. So don't give me your excuses, you know. Let's, let's make a change and let's make it start today. You know, the only thing I would say, and I, and I tell all my staff this, forget what your contract says, your job description is change somebody's life for the better. Like, that's it. That's the sum total of what your job description is. Um, you know, and I was talking to Mike Cataldo once, years and years and years ago. And he said, it, it must be nice to be one of those people who's so sure about what they do, that they must go to bed every night and like sleep well. He said, but I go to bed every night and ask myself, did I really do the best I could for the people that I support, that, I, that are coming to me for help? 
And I was thinking, this is Mike freaking Cataldo saying this, you know? And I was like, oh, and it was just a, a good object lesson to, you know, step back and, and, you know, change somebody's life for the better. Like that's the, that's the gig. Why else would you want to do this? You know, like I get spit on, I get hit, I get like, you know, bitten, I get urinated on, you know, the, the only reason that you stay in this field is because you love this field. So that's it. So I guess I'll transition to my closing thoughts. Uh, Amy, I want to circle back to something that you said and then uh, which was posted, which we didn't get to. In terms of uh, ABA autism, it's not the autism SIG that uh, makes those decisions because if it was, we have had an autistic adult speak years ago. But the Autism SIG, which Joe's a part of, I'm a part of, and Bob Ross is a part of, will reach out to the leaders of ABAI and talk about that this should be occurring. And it's a shame that it hasn't. So you have my word, not right after this, because I need to get some lunch, but uh, after I eat lunch, <laughs> I'll be emailing uh, the leaders about that. And so, uh, we're sincere about the dating curriculum, which came up. Uh, mm -hmm. It's something that we would love to be a part of. Uh, Peter has doctoral students. I have doctoral students. Uh, we have a research team. We'd love to get together and, and do that as well. If that's something Amy or and or Peter, you would like to um, do. I think that's really needed and something that we can absolutely help out with. So in terms of wrapping up, we want to thank everybody uh, for attending. Uh, remember, this is a pay for value uh, event. So if you find value in this, please donate. It helps us do things like research. And so we would love for you guys to donate, but understand if you don't want to. Uh, we would also love, you know, uh, general feedback. You can do that privately and say what you like or you don't like. But also if you want to give feedback on social media about this experience, that would be great. Uh, so people have a better understanding of what rants is and what rants is not. And so they see uh, the contributions we're trying to make with these every other Wednesday discussions with, with speakers. And so the opening word keyword was where, and the closing keyword is masks, M-A-S-K-S, wear masks. <laughs> I would like to go into my office and see my friends again, wear masks. <laughs> awesome. And thank you guys very much for doing this. This is freaking awesome. Well, thank you guys. Yes, thank you. Amy, it's awesome having you guys. We'll have you back, I'm sure. Uh, in season two, we only have uh, a few more episodes and we're done with season one and take a little hiatus. <laughs>